Welcome to the podcast in search of the perfect movie soundtrack. When the movie needs the soundtrack as much as the soundtrack needs the movie. I'm Josh Weber. And I'm Matt Lombardi. And I'm Heather Samples. Get those kids off to school and slip into something a little more comfortable as we're diving into the metaphorical valley for our sexiest episode yet. And trust me when I tell you, you better carry a big stick. Savannah. A long time ago, I asked God to send me a decent man. I got Robert, Cedric, Daryl, and Kenneth. God's got some serious explaining to do. Bernadine. I always thought if I gave him what he needed, he'd give me what I needed. It's amazing what can happen when you give a man power over your life. Robin. I don't know why I always pick the wrong men to fall in love with. I finally gave up on the last lying, sneaky, horse Pisces. Once I realized, mm, he was never going to marry me. Gloria. The last time my ex-husband was here, he did me a favor by spending the night. Lord, let him be merciful again tonight. <laughs> Seven times platinum, sells 12 million copies, 10 weeks is number one on the Billboard charts, a year in the top 200, a year and a half on the top R&B. Babyface is uh, referred to as the most creative pop soul musician since the prime of Stevie Wonder. Tonight, our episode is Waiting to Exhale. It came out in November 1995, which was three years after the book had been written in 1992 by Terry McMillan. And uh, Terry, Terry really blew it out of the water with this one. She, uh, she exploded on the bestseller charts. And she really created a book that people were deeply, deeply uh, invested in. And then a few years later, the movie rights are uh, turned over to the capable hands of Forrest Whitaker in his directorial debut. And he pulls in uh, Babyface as the writer and producer of the soundtrack. Matt, what is the plot of Waiting to Exhale? Um, The plot of Waiting to Exhale is, um, it's an ensemble piece, a true ensemble piece of four women, professionals in Arizona, um, all dealing with um, different problems in their love life, I would say, just in, in general. I mean, obviously, there's subplots throughout, um, you know, uh, interpersonal relationships that they each have, like uh, with a mom or a son and these sorts of things. But the through line, the main plot is, I think, as simple as women who don't have a man who feel like having a man is going to fulfill them in uh, ways that they won't be fulfilled in any other way. And in the end, come to realize that that is somewhat true but maybe not completely true and the movie is a little bit vague about where it lands on that question i think yeah i totally agree with you the the setup really is kind of about all we get overall it's 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 a very episodic story both on the page and on the screen where we kind of move through each of the four main characters lives and see some ups and some downs and some pivots and some moments of acceptance and redemption but there's no real like driving single force across the totality of the story which I'll, I will admit I will I, like maybe this is spoiling it too early but I find a story like that very hard to stick with in film. And I kept thinking while I was watching the movie, gosh, this should be a TV show. Mm. Like prestige mm. television would make such a, a great uh, 
a great medium for this kind of storytelling. And it makes a lot of sense. By the way, like as of late 2020, there there is a plan uh, with Lee Daniels producing to to I saw that. to do a, a TV series. He's pretty perfect for it. Yeah, and and I think that like I wish them all the best with that. I hope that COVID didn't uh, put the kibosh on that, and I hope that they 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 do end up making it because I think it actually makes a ton of sense to see the the four characters move through those things. But let's recap the four characters first of all. So we so we've got Savannah played by Whitney Houston. Savannah has just moved to Phoenix from Denver and. Bernie is her college friend who tells her there are men to be had in the desert. Uh, so come down here and take this job and follow your dreams and we'll also catch you a D in the process. <laughs> <laughs> Bernadine is able to say this because her life appears for all intents and purposes to be perfect until very early in the movie, her husband leaves her for his white uh, assistant. I think it's worth noting that that is a big, big point of contention in the film. Like, For sure. Heather's not just pointing that out that she just like happens to be white. It is actually something the film is very, very interested in. And it's, yeah, it's she a, calls him an Uncle Tom for it. Yeah, it's a big deal in the movie and what the movie's thinking about in a lot of ways. I thought that was good casting because they didn't cast some ridiculous Hollywood blonde. They cast what looked like the white woman in real life someone would be having an affair with at the office. Kelly Preston. That was Kelly Preston? Yeah, she's a pretty attractive wow. woman. I, I just think in the glow of Angela Bassett, which we'll get to, <laughs> she just looked like the most boring person. They dressed her down, yeah. We have Robin, and uh, Robin sort of plays like the Jezebel character. Gloria is sort of her foil. She has a son um, who is 17 and who has who has been, the, as she describes it, the man in her in her life, and she ha- she hasn't been with anybody as as Robin describes it in in her ten year drought. So we have these four women. They are each experiencing their own struggles with men, and and they are coming uh, together on the screen for us as friends. And that's really about it. it. The 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 driving plot is like, how will Bernie deal with being left by her husband? Will Savannah end up with a man who she has to settle for even though he's married or will she end up alone? Will Gloria find a man or will she decide to stay single and independent even when she becomes an empty nester? And how will Robin deal with the fact that all of the men around her are all scrubs and she, of different <laughs> varieties and she just kind of has to uh, figure, figure that out? Matt, do you want to uh, talk about Bunk and and his 38 Ds? <laughs> He's huge. <laughs> I I am not fat shaming Bunk. It's Robin who fat shames Bunk and talks about his 38 Ds and how yeah. hard it is to get wet for him. <laughs> um, yeah, so part of um, the beginning of the movie, which I didn't know because I'd never seen this before, was they do um, the inner kind of monologue the narration of each of the four characters and you get to hear what they're thinking and she's thinking okay i'm gonna sleep with this guy and she's saying he's not perfect 
He's not, you know, the sexiest man on earth. I forget what the lines are, but they're setting you up to see who this guy is. And then the door to the bathroom opens <laughs> and out busts Wendell Pierce with the goofiest glasses on. And I was like, Detective Bunk from The Wire? And so Bunk comes out with his goofy glasses and you're so... The stuff I've seen him, he's playing it straight and he's like playing it for laughs. And totally. I was totally laughing oh, and I was yeah. like, I don't know if... This is working just because I've only seen him as like a hard ass detective. And then like he's doing the dance and then he has sex and they go for like the twitchy eye. That's a generous description of it. It's <laughs> barely sex. <laughs> yeah. And they go for that like goofy male climax right. making funny faces scene. And I was just like not prepared for it. And I was like, Bunk, what is going on? Couple of things. Anyway. One, I think Bunk is one of the many fantastic casting surprises looking back on this movie you know 25 years later is like there are so many amazing character actors who built astonishing careers after this movie bunk is only like a lot of the men in the movie are like household names yeah mm -hmm. yep yep there are lots of fun ones um i i want to say about the the bunks the bunk sex scene that uh just so you guys know just so everyone who hasn't taken the time to read the 450 page novel waiting to exhale wow. uh that it is much 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 more sexually explicit than the film there's a lot of sex scenes in this movie yeah that's wild because the film is very sexually explicit like surprisingly would, so. yeah they don't close the door yeah. they like then show you them having sex yeah, like they're in that moment, Matt, you were mentioning when we hear the voiceovers of the characters and and their thoughts, their mo their interior monologues early in the movie to establish the four women for us. Uh, there's one moment where where Robin is talking about the kind of man she's looking for, and she uh, uses the word stick to refer to Dick. Uh, yeah, yeah, she likes. She said she's like she always falls for the wrong kind of guy. I think she says like she likes them pretty and with a big stick. Yeah, yeah. It, the book is is all about dick. It says the word dick all the time. Well, it's it's not it's not like penthouse forum like cock level, but it but it has a lot of like pretty. You, you're you're only you're only a chapter into the book before it's very clear to you that Terry McMillan wants you to know that she is not going to talk about sex in a way that feels different from how you would talk about it with your girlfriends. Yeah, there, I, I actually quoted and wrote down a dick line that made me laugh, and I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna reread it to you. It's a dramatic when, reading. It's when um, is Gloria is the hairdresser, right? Yeah. These ensemble pieces, lots of names. Gloria's son is always kind of screwing up, and he's always saying, "I'm sorry," and she gets mad at him. She's like, "You're sorry for this. You're sorry for that." And then it ends with her saying, "You're sorry you let someone suck on your little 17 year old dick." That's and the so way she disturbing. says it is so funny and weird because so her context, she walks in on him getting a blowjob. He's a high school kid. Um, and the girl runs out of the room. It's kind of a silly scene. It's surprising. Imagine it's, if your mom said that to you, though. I, it's well, weird. Well, imagine if your mom said that to you when you were Donald Faison, uh, Zach Braff's bestie from Scrubs. Yes. Like, that's another one of the surprise castings. There, there are lots of them. And I gave my love to you. Sweet rivers flow for you Please don't tear my heart into two As I give my love to you As I open wide for you 
It's funny. I think that there were like actually a decent number of, of black women who were writing their dissertations or like articles when they were still assistant professors who I followed actually like later all of the all of this like academic research about it that I ended up reading I was like whatever happened to her I'm I'm reading this like mimeographed like pulled up from the sands of time kind of article like where is she now and they all ended up with like pretty successful academic careers and now they're all full professors and everything but but one of them was like yeah it doesn't it doesn't try to tell all of the truths but the ones that it does take on, it takes on with heart, I think is is like a really nice summation of the movie. It's, yeah, it's very convincing. You don't mm. feel like you're bullshitted at all. It's totally You never think it's bullshit. Yeah. You're like, oh, this right. is real. And I think it's also a great uh, rev- like mini review of the soundtrack. <laughs> which nice. is, Soundtrack, which did is, you say? <laughs> <laughs> which is to say that Babyface is not taking on a range of truths in this soundtrack, but the ones that he takes on, he takes on with complete and total dedication to the project. And he brings in a a truly like VH1 Divas level lineup. Oh man, it's the all-star lineup for sure. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. There's not a single performer on uh, on the soundtrack who is not a black woman. I mean, there might be some like session musicians, musicians or, or something, yeah. right? But um, but all of the all of the performers are black women. Just to give you like a little a little dash of it, Whitney Houston opens it up for us with uh, the the first single, which is "Exhale Shoop Shoop," and she also closes the uh, soundtrack down with um, a song that she performs with her sister Cece Winans, and then in in the middle we get a whole sort of smorgasbord. We've got Brandy, who is a teenager in, in like her Moesha moment, all the <laughs> way through to like Aretha Franklin and Shaka Khan. Patti LaBelle, Faith Evans, that one's interesting, Tony Braxton and TLC. Tony Braxton and TLC were essentially, along with Usher, like made by Babyface. They, they, their careers started on LaFace Records. Um, so we've got this whole slew of 16 songs that are all uh, like creme de la creme R&B. And almost all, I think almost all of the songs, like maybe one or two is not written by Babyface. Like That's literally right. all of them are written by Babyface. Yeah, there's That's just a, like three covers. Oh no, yep, maybe, or, maybe just two. Something like that, yeah. Uh, My Funny Valentine, which is performed by Shaka Khan, obviously is not, not mm-hmm. written by Babyface. Um, and maybe there's one or one or two other no i'm looking at it now any anyone he didn't write he he, mm. he had a co-writer he wrote with but they're all babyface i noticed in the wow. credits there was there was two music executive producer credits and one the first one is like music executive producer uh forrest whitaker and the second one is like uh uh whatever i don't remember the official title but the second one is babyface's executive producer credit and my and my thought about that was forrest whitaker got that credit for basically just picking up the phone and calling babyface and say do you <laughs> want to take on this entire freaking project because i mean what did forrest whitaker do beyond i mean babyface does the entire soundtrack it's almost yeah. a score and you think if you think about it that way yeah in fact forrest whitaker call has a conversation with quincy jones who tells oh, him okay. you should go get babyface to do this and Forrest Whitaker is like, uh, okay, I, whatever you say, Q. And so he goes to Babyface, and Babyface is like 
uh, and you've already got Whitney Houston? And he's like, I've already got Whitney Houston. And Babyface says to himself, Whitney Houston has just done The Bodyguard. She may or may not want to do any more soundtracks. She might not appear on the soundtrack. I'm dealing with... He was was actually really intimidated. But Forrest Forrest talks him into it and like fluffs him up. And then Babyface goes in hard. I'm going to share this one thing with on the screen with you really quick. This is the the, the chart ranking peak position for this album around the world. And obviously you can't see this at home, but I'll just give you the quick rundown. Australia albums one, Austrian albums one, Belgian albums one, Canadian albums one, Dutch albums one, German. I mean, it's basically the entire world. New Zealand, Norway, Scotland, Spanish, sweet. Yeah, (laughs) everywhere. It goes number one all over the world incredible and then of course ua us and uk baby face you know obviously he, yes uh, yeah wow he succeeds what what was your what was your favorite song on this soundtrack, Matt? Or maybe the one that you, you found most interesting? The thing with this album is it's definitely more of a mood because at yes. this point in R&B, it has this really meticulously produced sound. And it's not into big dynamics as much as it is into kind of the beat and the flow and the vocals um, of the song. And, you know, in 1995... It's a lot of loud, soft, loud, soft, loud, soft, you know, like Pixies, Nirvana. The music is kind of following um, that vibe. And you have the rise of hip hop, which also does that. But this is just this chill mood. And it's probably why when this came out when I was 16, I wasn't very interested in it. But listening to it now, I just kind of let go. And I was like, stop trying to listen to each song. And I kind of just let it play in the background. And then after doing that a few times, then each song kind of started to like show itself. But the one I was going to talk about, which I thought, because at first I laughed at it and then it really grew on me, was the one cover song, the non-Babyface songs. My Funny Valentine by Shaka Khan. My Funny Valentine Sweet Call me Valentine You make me smile with my heart Yeah, it's good. It's a good one. It's late career Shaka Khan. Not, you know, 70s funk Shaka Khan. But My Funny Valentine is a jazz standard that goes back to... um, I forgot the play. It's a Rogers and Hart uh, Babes in Arms from 1937. And from that musical, it just becomes a jazz standard. And if you look up who sang My Funny Valentine in the 40s and 50s and 60s, it's basically anyone who's ever sang a song from, <laughs> you know, Billie Holiday to Frank Sinatra to Chet Baker, obviously, to Barbara Streisand. It's just if you're the kind of person who's ever covered a song. Or at least everybody who's ever sang a song that everybody Uh, Yeah, I meant anyone who sang a song. If you're in the shower, if you're, if you don't, if you're just by yourself, no. Um, Yeah, anyone who is known as a vocalist, it seems. And I looked up the Mm -hmm. list, and it's like 
hundreds of covers of it and you you would recognize like over 50 of the names anyway so this is the late shaka khan version and i have to say she ends the song how you've never heard it end before everyone you know kind of is a little soft or caring or desperate sounding or um being coy and she goes into this part about stay kind of don't leave me stay thing and she just goes with it and it really is just a different take. She turns it into this like pleading love song, which I've never heard anyone do. And I got into it. At first, it's kind of, you know, sounds very of the moment and of the form. You kind of roll your eyes a little. And then when you just really listen to it a few times, I think it's it's great. And then it sent me on a little Shaka Khan um, tour of her early funk stuff. And she, her breakout solo, she was in a funk band. Her breakout solo was I'm Every Woman, which then Whitney Houston covers in, I think, 1992 and makes it an even bigger hit. So I thought that was a fun little connection that was going on there. That is interesting. Yeah. But the song I kept playing all week was uh, Tell Me Something Good by Rufus when Shaka Khan was in that band. Um, And you're like, oh, of course she left the band and became a star. But if do yourself a favor this week after listening to this and listen to Tell Me Something Good by Shaka Khan. It is great. movie has a lot of parallels to really lovable stories that we know that are about female friendship like you you watch this movie and you think you think about designing women and you think about the golden girls and you think about sex in the city and steel magnolias like all of these these uh sort of like comfort food kinds of uh film and television that are all about usually for women coming together and figuring out their lives alongside one another. You know, in all of these kinds of stories where we have a, a collection of, of friends and the story is really about the love of, of friends and chosen family, there's always a, are, are you a Samantha? Are you a Miranda? Joshua, are, are you, do you most identify with Bernie? Or are you a Savannah, a Gloria, or a Robin? Yeah, and we should explain too as we go along who who these characters are. Heather, could you do that? Could you give us like what you what you would say the summation of these characters is of the types? I mean, yeah, the types. Um, so, uh, Robin is the young hustling uh, hoe, <laughs> and and uh, Savannah is the balanced, smart, strategic thinker who sometimes falters but always pulls out of a of an error. Gloria is the caretaking, nurturing uh, rock for anyone and everyone. And um, Bernie is the uh, person who always wanted to be more independent than she actually found herself being. 
I definitely would like to think that there's aspects of all of these women within me that I am every woman. <laughs> but, you know, if I'm going to have to pick, I think I am um, somewhat unfortunately going to have to say I'm probably a Bernie. Why is it unfortunate? Um, because I, I, I kind of... He once set a car on fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, being a little bit too uh, um, dependent on others mm -hmm. and, um, and putting your self-worth a little bit too much in, in other people's ideas of you and um, maybe not pursuing your full life because of that. I think that, you know, I think that I, that, that resonates for me. Unfortunately, I, I actually wish that I was saying somebody different. Matt? I, I don't feel like a Bernie. I don't feel like a Gloria. And I'm not, I'm not slutty enough to be a Robin. <laughs> but I do have the, you know, everyday sex appeal of Whitney Houston as Savannah. <laughs> so I have to go. With, um, but no, she just seemed the most self-aware. And mm. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, maybe I'm not self-aware, but then that would make me not self-aware. But I think I am self-aware, but now I'm getting inside my head. But so I was just kind of relating to her choices and kind of the way she navigated the world more. And she, I don't know, she just seemed a little more um, with it than the other people. Yeah. I mean, she's the Carrie Bradshaw of this movie, right? Like, to to come back to this parallel, like, I, th I think that Waiting to Exhale is like the the proto version of Sex in the City. It's like but but with black women it's so much of it is the same and i think that that's part like let's remember that sex in the city was successful as an episodic show and a fucking failure every time they tried to make a movie out of yeah. it mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but yeah she's the she's the the closest thing we have to a to a single protagonist i was relating hard to gloria when she was falling for gregory hines because yeah i love gregory hines he was very good in it he is <laughs> so charming to me yeah he's very and charming in it. as a kid he's in muppets take manhattan when miss piggy <laughs> is running through the park and there's a chase scene and he gives her his roller skates and he has oh, this like right? really yes. funny scene and i recognized him because you know he's a famous tap dancer and i think he might have been on sesame street and it was an early, like, I know that guy in a movie thing. And then he's in one of the great forgotten buddy cop films called Running Scared. It's a mid-80s movie with him and Billy Crystal. And dare I say it's on the level of, like, lethal weapon for your, like, black-white buddy cop. They're, like, Chicago cops okay. who just want to open a bar on an island and leave, but they got to solve one last case. And it is actually so funny and still watchable and fun that I would I would like to plug that as, like, the forgotten but he, and I always wish Gregory Hines had a bigger career. And then he died young at 57, hmm. which was really sad. Um, anyway, so that's when I was relating to Gloria because I was like, ah, oh, and his like New York accent comes through a little and it's very sweet. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I love him. I would, I would like, to, I think I would like to say I was Gloria. She's, she's a very, very charming character. I think Gloria is one of the um, most fun characters to watch. Yeah. And I, she's also so kind. Yeah. The way yeah, she takes her husband's kind, news, yeah. or we should set it up for the viewers, her husband who who comes by and is not in her life, they'll have a fling once in a while, S said he always thought he was bi, but now he knows he's gay. And I thought for 1995, she handled that pretty well. Yeah, really well, yeah. actually. No, I th and I think that- Better than her son. <laughs> better than her son. Yeah. Uh, I think it's no coincidence that she gets the closest thing to the happiest ending. Like she, yeah, she, who doesn't want Gregory Hines? Yeah. Also, he fixes things and paints things and repairs things. And, and she hasn't even seen him tap dance yet. <laughs> 
All right. I think that yeah. you were next in this question. Heather. Oh, yeah. I'm a Bernie. I don't think I would cry as much as Bernie cries. I think she's. Yeah. Angela Bassett can like fire up some tears real easy. Uh, but I would I would struggle. I would struggle to figure out my independence and I would struggle mm. to figure out how I was going to make it all work and be happy in that situation. I would much, much prefer to be a Robin who I think has a lot of things figured out <laughs> way more than the, the, than either the movie or the book give her credit for Yeah, because she's uh, she knows how to get what she wants in the moments that she wants it. And when she doesn't get what she wants, she turns away from it fairly easily. She doesn't waffle about like, should I do this? Should I not do this? She's decisive. And, uh, and she, she moves through life with a, a confidence about that that I really mm-hmm. appreciate. The songs on this soundtrack are, I think, uh, a kind of, they're a kind of sex music. But they're a kind of sex music that uh, I think is kind of assuming that you know what you're doing. (laughs) And all you need is... And all you need is that mood that Matt was talking about. Unlike so many of the men in the movie, though. <laughs> well, I think that's actually, re- it's like really interesting how much both the book and the movie are, they're didactic. Like if you're a dude watching this shit and you don't know what you're doing and you're carefully watching, you will learn some things, especially if you read the book. But not huh. from Bunk. But <laughs> not from, well, you learn what not to do. You learn that that this like, this like wham bam thank you ma'am shit does not work um anyway i think it's i think it's an album of sex music but it's an album of background sex music in a way that say like rihanna is not background sex music rihanna is like take me into the moment show me what i'm doing get me get me moving and vibing uh and i think that tlc is doing something very similar in a song that is literally titled this is how it works. <laughs> and and if you and if you listen to the lyrics, you will you will literally get a play by play of precisely what you need to be doing. Uh, Matt, we joke about whether or not uh, the perfect movie soundtrack podcast is service journalism. I will tell you what is most definitely fucking service journalism, <laughs> and that is this song. Listen to this piece of it. Uh. In, out, in, make it last. Kiss, 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 my. That's how it works. Go do south. I just think it's great. I think it's great that. <laughs> I think it's it's 
I think it's just like really beautifully done in the way that it's still sexy. It doesn't sound like you're getting a fucking play-by-play, -play, but that's actually exactly what you're getting. You're being told exactly what to do in a way that is like a little dirtier, a little edgier, a little raunchier, a little bit less romantic, um, and yet is like really fun. I feel like uh, we're, we're looking to Left mm -hmm. Eye and Chili mm -hmm. and T-Boz to like bring a little bit of, of, uh, of joy to the to this soundtrack that otherwise has a lot of sorrow in it it's um, really and I, and i and i i ended up loving this song i ended up playing it to myself quite a bit and juxtaposing it with with like <laughs> wop like I, I i listened to i made a little playlist for myself of like what happens when uh female performers tell their male partners exactly what they want um and it's got some Rihanna on it. It's got some WAP on it. It's got some TLC on it. And and I and I think that uh, we can we can really respect like T TLC TLC are the ancestors. They're the they're the grandmothers. They did some real work for us. Oh, there. I think it's a great. If story. they're listening now, I'd like to apologize for calling you grandmothers. TLC. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they certainly would be. Um, the uh, the uh, I think I'm pretty sure. Not completely sure, but I'm pretty sure that Left Eye co-wrote this song. She did, Maybe. which I think yes, which I think is like. Right? Okay. I think it's a. Uh, I think that's important. Yeah, you're right. Well, it's one of the only. It's one of the only co-writers I think that's like credited. I mean, I'm sure other people worked on stuff, but like Whitney Houston yeah. on one of them too is a is credited as a co-writer for Count on Me. Yeah, and you know, Babyface is the kind of guy that. Uh, doesn't have to share co-writing credits yeah. you know what i mean like if if, he, if he's if he's sharing them with you it's because he's he's giving you the gift of yeah. saying like yes you did enough work on this that you will now get a whole bunch of money because <laughs> <laughs> back the truck up for this for this soundtrack i mean how many number one singles or how many how many top 10 singles or whatever it is five six something like that i think it's six six and they're all wow. i think all except for my funny they're all babyface songs i mean whoa that dude, yeah. Whew, that Thank dude you, bought a whole city off of the money he made off of this soundtrack. Um, Heather, c conversely about the sex thing, though, I agree with you, but I also think there's another side of the soundtrack, which is light the candles. I've got an example for you here. Put the soap in the bathtub, get some bubbles, and and just be feeling yourself. Not sexually. I didn't mean feeling yourself sexually. Oh, wow, okay. I got a, I got a sex one. <laughs> Josh was like, yeah, feeling yourself to the waiting exhale soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> hey, whatever. Yeah. But no, I, I hear what you're saying, Matt. I, I think because the sex thing is there, but there's also the like, I'm just gonna be myself and chill and right. and light those candles. Totally. Yeah. Empowerment songs. Yeah. What's your sex song, Joshua? <laughs> there's a stanza in um All Night Long by SWV that is uh the third line is which is the one that it's that I like I was I was listening to this today um uh walking the dog and um is that so what you call it? <laughs> <laughs> Self-care is important, Matt. <laughs> Wait, what was the third line? This was it. So the, the the stanza goes, you can melt in my body and I will slowly melt onto you. Caress your face in my valley. Let me feel that sweetness of you. <laughs> Caress your face. In my valley. She's talking about Arizona. There's a lot of valleys in yeah. Arizona. So like, <laughs> lucky for you, I have a valley <laughs> caress your face. within which you can caress your own mm -hmm. face. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, you know, here we are like, uh, you know, I was thinking about how, um, there's a lot of parsing of, um, 
lyrics to be like, oh, I, you know, Little Red Corvette is really about a penis. And, you know, it's like, well, is it really? Like, you know, you have to yeah. listen to it really closely. And some of these are just like, no, I mean. Caress your face in my belly. Yeah, there's there's not a lot of interpretation here. <laughs> yeah, people talking about reversing the gaze. They're just literally taking the gaze and putting it in the valley. And all of that is just really inspiring. It's inspiring to think about uh, in any moment, but I think particularly for 1995, to think about women being like, this is actually what I want from you. Here, are, he, Here's what I want you to do. So just fucking do it. <laughs> um, the amount of sex and explicit sex and explicit sex talk in the movie was so very surprising to me. Um, you know, 1995 was an era when I was seeing, you know, a lot of movies. I mean, I was prime, like me, like well, I was waking up at 11 a.m. and like, that's the thing I'm going to do today. I'm going to go to see some movies, often more than one in a row, you know, because you just sneak into the second one. What a time to um, be alive. <laughs> I know, right? And uh, I was I was actually trying to think of movies that were as sexually explicit. And I mean, the list is pretty short. I mean, and the ones that I could come up with were like that was the plot so like basic instinct is yeah. like about sex that's like the point right so and it's trying to be provocative so it's using sexuality as a way to be provocative this is actually like you can read the description of waiting for exhale and have no idea that they're going to talk about dicks throughout the movie they're going to complain about small ones they're going to aspire for big ones <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have a question, and it has to do with maybe you saw it in the book, Heather. Why Arizona? Oh, it's such an interesting decision, right? Well, let me, before I I do, I knew that we were going to talk about this because it really does seem. John McCain's Arizona, by the way. Truly incongruous uh, to to me, at least. And and it stood out to me as well. Do either of you have, did either of you think about like why that must be or, or, or did you stay in the, in the wonderment? I definitely thought about why it must be. And I mentioned it to Emily, my wife, and she said, oh, I have two successful black friends who live in Arizona. And I was like, wait, 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 (laughs) is that a thing? Is this a thing I don't know about? So I was wondering if the book talked about it. The setting really plays a big role. I mean, the movie is, is really interested in the setting. There's, there's, it's not that it just happens to be in Arizona. The movie really makes a point of the fact that it's in Arizona. Oh, yeah. There's there's like a little desert fire scene. Oh, yeah. They use the backdrop of the uh, mesas and stuff over and over and over again. And I actually thought a lot of it was a soundstage because a lot of it looks really fake. And then I looked up there where they live. And, uh, you know, you can see like where, where her house was on Zillow. And it's a real little complex. I, I literally thought it was a built soundstage because it looks so fake. But it, no, it's it's a real spot. I think that waiting to exhale the the book is as much as maybe maybe we can't really always say this about books, but to the extent that we can, I think that waiting to exhale is a as a like composite of all of Terry McMillan's like life moments and and moments with men. Like I think she has seen herself in each of these four women at different times in her life and she's putting them all down on the page and I think that she uh identifies mo- most most uh, uh, she identifies most with Savannah um but she's she's all of these women. So 
She was actually uh, an associate professor of writing at the University of Arizona, which which happened okay, there you after go. she was a visiting writer at the University of Wyoming in Laramie. Mm. But before all that, you guys, she was going to get an MFA in film at Columbia. She walked away uh, because she couldn't deal with the institutional racism of the program and the university. Wow. So she did attend and then left? Yep. Wow. Yeah. When she, when she dropped out of the MFA film program at Columbia, that's when she went to the uh, Harlem Writers Guild and decided to like live more closely to black communities. Hmm. It's interesting what that means, though, living closer to black communities. And I guess this is a comment on the importance of the book and the novel as being a, an artifact of middle-class black America, which is something that had not been seen in popular movies and books before, at least not commonly. And the choice to then set the story in Arizona is, it seems to me anyway, playing with that idea that these communities are everywhere, which I would imagine was incredibly empowering to all of the women who um, fit into this category or aspired to fit into this category of middle-class professional woman who lived in those areas that probably felt like there wasn't a large black community, or maybe rather that their local community wouldn't feel large enough or important enough to have these sorts of stories told about it. Wow. Now I feel really guilty because I was watching this movie at one point and in my head, I was like, I kind of wish this was in New York. <laughs> I think they went, they were going to a party and I was like, oh, I wish I could see 1995 New York and what was going on there in their worlds. So. There's lots of movies available for you to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, That's one of the true. things about Arizona is, uh, and this is, I, it, this is kind of like barely touched on in both the book and the movie a couple of times, but you're, I don't think you're intended to pay a whole lot of attention to it, but they feel the need to acknowledge that like, we don't associate Arizona with a lot of black folks. Um, mm -hmm. And, and for me, I think that that's actually like an important part of the undercurrent of the movie is, oh, yeah. is like, what does it mean to be not just a woman, not just a black woman, not just a professional, successful, upper middle-class black woman, but what does it mean to be all of those things in a largely white community? Um, with with largely white norms, uh, which is I think what what we're intended to picture in Arizona in the '90s, especially when when Robin says to uh, Wendell Pierce Bunk from The Wire as he is like trying to do pillow talk with her after he has <laughs> totally disgusted her with his like shit uh, love making in that in that moment of pillow talk, uh, he asks her what do you, what do you want? Tell me what you want. And one of the very first things she says is, I want to own a house in Scottsdale. And I think Scottsdale is like code in that moment. What code mm -hmm. for what? Code for white. So I, I think Oh, oh, okay. I, I think and like when the when the firefighter comes up Right. Yeah, the firefighter's interesting. To yeah. Angela Bassett's house after she's set uh John, her husband's stuff on fire in the car in the driveway, and he says, like, 
this is a nice neighborhood. So they're like these moments where you start to- They're very small moments though. They're very small. But they're very subtle. Yeah, they're very subtle. The, but I think they're uh, intentional. Uh, yeah. And I think we're like, I think they were designed for a black audience to hear and see them. Sure. Yeah. And I think that one of the other ways that the movie is playing with that, well, uh, let me say it a different way. The, the, um, the movie is not explicitly confronting any of that stuff, which which I'm actually I think is great. It did, you know, not every movie needs to like get in and actually like wrestle with these questions and think about this stuff so explicitly. It's and and plus like as you're saying, I think it just accepts that uh, the audience is going to understand where these women live and the connotations there. But one of the ways the movie does this very subtly is um pretty much all of the white people in the movie are extras and often uh, service workers, waiters mm -hmm. and uh, bartenders mm -hmm. and things, which I think is not a coincidence, right? It's not by accident. Um, and also another thing that's very interesting, and I wish I had a series of screenshots to, to share, but pretty much all of the white extras are the biggest dorks you've ever seen <laughs> i mean just watch the background of this movie and every single time in the background there's some dude with a dorky ponytail or somebody <laughs> playing an acoustic guitar in the in the quad or just like it's it's really funny it's really funny like over and over and over again i kept seeing people in the background that i'm like there's a dork like i mean it's very clear that like if you got cast as an extra in this <laughs> there was a comment being made about who you were what you look like do, do you guys as do you guys as as male male viewers of this movie do you do you feel like it's a a, a man bashing movie no I didn't feel no, that. No, because the, the, I mean, it, it feels like the things they're saying sound all true. And then there are, there are so many different examples of different kinds of men in this that I think they're not, you know, just saying men are all like this and they're bashing them because you have lots of, you have bad examples, good examples, middle of the road examples. And so I think they just cover all of it. That's what I felt. Oh, that's interesting. The actor who plays John Angela Bassett's husband talks about uh, in an interview or two how hard it was to be such a heel and how he later after the movie came out would like walk down the street and women would just like smack him upside oh, the head. Oh, wow. Um, huh. Well, he's a he's an especially and, yeah, he's very character. devious in the movie. And he, he also says like, but I didn't mind. It was all worth it because huh. I got to be opposite Angela Bassett and her yeah. character needed me to be a heel. And so that that's what I was. But there was actually a pretty big backlash when the movie came out um, from men about how- That sounds like yeah. bullshit. Well, well, I think uh, predominantly it was, it was black men who were saying, this is the last thing the brothers need is, uh, is for- is for you guys to be saying that that we're all assholes. But the Million Man March in DC was was in October ninety five, and this movie comes right. out in November ninety five. Oh, that made everything more interesting. And I don't know. I I I I observe that coincidence that like the Million Man March is making a very similar argument to what the women in the movie are making, which is that mm -hmm. there's this idea or this image that men have are not taking the the role that they need to be taking. They're not being good yep. husbands. They're not um, marrying black women. They're not being responsible. And the Million Man March was very much about like um, whether you know. To, to maybe to some extent this is true, but whether or not it is true or not, it has become the the story of black men at that era. And the Million Man March was a way of saying, like, this is not the reality. Look at us. We're actually very proud to be this. So I think they're actually 
saying very similar things. And I, and I think that, I don't know, I'd have to read what you're talking about, but I suspect that the men are being a little defensive. I think the movie is, is, I mean, the women are, are critical of the fact that Mm -hmm. men have failed them in a lot of different ways in the movie, but the women are also like overly desperate for, for like this, to check this box. Like, I mean, it's, I mean, it, that part of the movie has not aged really well. I mean, it's, it's like, yeah, it's like Jane Austen level Mm -hmm. marriageability shit. Yeah. Well, I think, I think (laughs) that actually this is one of the things that makes this a Gen X movie. Mm. Is that is that uh, is that the 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 characters, the women characters, and the women viewers are all sort of dealing with this moment of how much am I going to fulfill the have it all shit that I've been told I'm supposed to do, and That's how much am I going to say fuck it? Um, and that tension is, I think, a like a a classic Gen X conundrum, right? Um, Ultimately in the, in the like cultural storytelling that privileges like white Gen Xers, it was all the, the answer to that, that problem was fuck it, like drop out. But I think that one of the things that makes this movie important to see if you care about the nineties as a like moment is like, Oh, maybe for some black women, uh, the dropping out part was a lot harder to do. Um, hmm. And I can imagine That's all kinds of reasons why, why why that was. I like the Gen X shout out. I think too that this was a time when more people got married. Oh yeah, that makes sense. And younger too. Yeah, very young. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So imagine if we all married the person we married when we were twenty one or whatever, like our parents. I kind of did do that, so you know. Heather, Heather did do that. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why didn't I get no response from Heather here? And she, you got like, no response from Heather because you're just filled with shame. <laughs> <laughs> Joshua, tell us about the song that uh, stands out to you on this, uh, this masterwork of Babyface. Yeah, um, I guess that there's a couple. I, one of the ones that I was I was uh, immediately drawn to was the Brandy song. And I think that I was trying to figure out why that is. And it, it's mostly that that's the song that like I found myself like whistling to pretty quickly in the song. Like it, it has a catchier a more poppy hook. A lot of the music is very, you know, very much R&B. And R&B is not pop music, right? Like R&B is like you're saying like more about a chill, a vibe, a feeling. Um and there's a very like close relationship between R&B and smooth jazz and that those are both very closely related to Muzak. Like they're, they actually kind of are birthed in the same sort of little place. And Mm -hmm. so there's a part of like R and B music of this era that sounds to me like music. Oh yeah. That's why it sounds like adult contemporary, you know? And also it fell out of favor because all the young kids were like alternative hip hop. So then I read that it just fell under the hands of all the high, uh, uh, just a few high end producers. So that's why it has that super produced crisp Mm. corporate sound. Uh, there's a tenor to like the sound of the synths and the sound of the percussion drums that has that sound that that makes me kind of fade out 
Like, like I just, like I, I, there's a little bit of elevator music to it to when I first hear it to me. And so when I heard the Brandy song, I was like, oh yeah, like there's like a catchy refrain in there. So that, that was like a way in, but listening to the soundtrack a number of times, I found some other paths into some things and was able to kind of see here past my, my inability to hear, if you will, which is that, uh-huh. uh, uh, you know, the songs don't, I don't recognize and find a lot of the sounds immediately um familiar and welcoming and so i have to kind of dig dig deeper but once i did i started to find some things i enjoyed and one of the things i enjoyed about this soundtrack is that because it's written by babyface for the movie the there's a lot of songs and a lot of lyrics that are like literally about the movie um some of them very much explicitly in the lyrics but then a lot of them that are just like very detailed versions of um uh you know what you might be going through, right? I was thinking about how how not abstract some of these lyrics are. Like they're oh, really yeah. like uh-huh. very concrete. Like you know, I, I I don't have a lot of examples right here in front of me of that necessarily, but I mean they're very much like you know you right now are feeling exactly this way, and later tonight you are going to feel exactly this way, and tomorrow morning There's you know. A- you could almost listen to the soundtrack, and as long as you were paying attention to the lyrics, you wouldn't need to watch the movie. Yeah, like, yeah. The whole narrative is inside the lyrics that <laughs> Babyface wrote for this soundtrack. Right. Yeah. So the one that I ended up like really like enjoying because I was kind of kind of got into that idea, and you know, like the one I looked up with SWV that had like the valley line. Like it kind of started to be funny to me that I was like, oh man, this this these lyrics are really about this movie. And um, there's the Mary J. Blige one, not gun cry. N-O-T-G-O-N-C-R-Y. And um, it's an f- interesting song to me for a number of reasons. I found it also to be one of the more catchy songs. Like I, I could like kind of, you know, hum along to it. Like it has a little bit more of that, uh, of a, a chorus that is, uh, that is a little bit catchy or whatever. And um, also that she has a lot of very specific, she, she pronounces certain words in ways that is very funny because she's like, um, really like playing with uh like so there's a line where she says about um i was your lover and you and your and the line is i was your lover and your secretary and i can't imitate mary j blige of course but she's she's pronounced secretary like secretary <laughs> and it's it's she's really i mean really like you could tell she's like oh yeah that oh you want me to say that word this is how i say that word and like really hitting those moments hard and um so one of the things that i thought was really fun about this song well okay there's a couple things one is that this the the chorus is I'm not gonna cry I'm not gonna cry I'm not gonna shed no tears and the song is very much about Angela Bassett's character, um, and being left and being heartbroken after you've given all this to this man. And what I thought was really interesting, and this goes back to what I kind of what you were talking about a little bit, Matt, earlier about it being there being these songs that are about empowerment, is that the I'm not gonna cry is not actually true. Mm-hmm. Like you're crying yeah. a lot. Like 
Crying is actually what Angela Bassett does most of the movie. Or Rage, which, man, every time she she turns on the Rage button, I'm like, there's there's Angela. She's so good. Like, she's like, her... There's a reason... Her anger is so good. Like... Uh, and there's a reason that scene of her uh, setting that car yeah. on fire remains a very useful gift to this day. <laughs> you know, everybody does a really good job in it, but it, she's clearly on a different level she's yeah. far and above the rest and yeah. um so this song i'm not gonna cry um i thought it was really interesting because it's like it seems to be saying that i'm over you and i'm not gonna wallow in this anymore but coupled with the movie what it's actually saying is like if i say this to myself enough like a mantra maybe I can get to the point where I'm not going to feel this way anymore. And I thought that was sort of interesting because I think the first reading is, is, is more slight. This idea that you can just like get over something, right? Like I'm, you're a jerk and therefore I'm done with you. But that's not true in the movie, right? He's a jerk. He's terrible. And it takes her the entire movie to, to deal with that fact, right? Like just because he's a jerk doesn't mean that she wanted him to leave, right? And so mm-hmm. I liked that aspect of the song as well. But there's another aspect that I like, too, and that's that how explicitly literal the song is about Angela Bassett's character to the point that there's lyrics like, um, okay, I'll read from the top. While all the time I was loving you, you were busy loving yourself. I would stop breathing if you told me to. Now you're busy loving someone else. Eleven years out of my life. There it is. (laughs) Eleven. Like, like literally. Like, like, it's so funny. It's not like a decade. You know, a decade would have worked there or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. No, she was, they were married for 11 years. So true to the movie. Um, and so I was, I was yeah. really enjoying that. And so I did a little bit of digging and I found like, actually the original version was even more literal. And I found this little demo that I'll play for you that shows you how like exactly literal these lyrics got. Wait, you have a waiting to exhale baby face demo? <laughs> wow. That didn't make the cut. Oh my God. I love this. You're, you're about to hear it. <laughs> I love this podcast. Was your lover and your secretary <laughs> working every day? Did Joshua make a present for us? <laughs> was that the job when no one else was there? Helping you get home <laughs> on your feet. Eleven years of sacrifice. <laughs> and you can leave me for Kelly Preston. That white bitch. I'll set your car on fire in the driveway and take your second house in Acapulco. That, wow. <laughs> so a deep cut, you know, you can see why, you can see why Babyface no made some changes. No can say that this is not a podcast full of fan service. I don't know which fans, I don't know what they're fans of. But they are being served. I, I'd even argue we may have just lost a few fans, but yeah, uh, it's it. amazing. I can't believe you did that, dude. Wow. Well, it uh, segue out of it, that, Heather. I'm trying, man. Uh, I can't. It's amazing that we did Whitney Houston through Waiting to Exhale 
instead of through the bodyguard. I kind of like that move. I think that's a cool move. The bodyguard's the obvious one. We'll have to do that at some point, but I really like that move. Yeah, we will definitely have to do the bodyguard at some point. And I'm also really glad that that I've like that we all went as deep on uh, waiting to exhale and all of its source material as as we did before we before we experience the bodyguard. I think it'll be helpful, even though that's in reverse chronology. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I, you have to think the the bodyguard soundtrack. Once you get Whitney Houston on it, it was like a juggernaut at that point. Yeah, I feel like. They're like, okay, you're covered. Go for it. Do whatever. And then everyone wants to come to the big party thing. That's what I'm just assuming. Because she was so huge at that point. Yeah, it seems to be have worked and that maybe, way. maybe, like, that's part of how this ends up being, having such a legacy. Like, it's, it's, it ends up spurring all kinds of book clubs. It, but it becomes, I, I, I actually think it's pretty interesting that Oprah uh, launches. Her, I was just going to ask this. Oprah launches her book club in 96. That's, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I read about a, a book club in Cleveland uh, that was started as a direct result of waiting to exhale. It was like, hmm. oh, we, we need to have like some consciousness raising conversations. Like, let's do a book club. So it, it really did kind of change uh, norms about what is profitable, who needs to be served, what it means to be represented in ways that are like really powerful. Um, and that I think carry a pretty big legacy and made a lot of shit that we really take for granted now. Uh, possible i mean you definitely need those uh you need the movies that are like the first ones of this kind to be very successful and it was so mm-hmm. like that was a bit of a burden that it had on it is like it has to work right it has to be good enough that it will make a lot of money like it can't just be a critically acclaimed movie it has to make a lot of money because otherwise the studios don't give a shit right so yep. it's like yeah. it needed that to happen and it did they, they, they accomplished the, the hell out of that. The soundtrack probably really helped. Well, the too. soundtrack did made. It, it ran some good cover. You would make this movie just, if the movie was going to make zero dollars, but just produce the soundtrack, you would do that because the soundtrack made yeah. so much money. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Waiting exhale uh, walked so a lot of things could run. Oh, I just realized we never explained, we never talked about the metaphor waiting to exhale. Does that matter? Oh, we can. No, I think we do need to do it. And it's super fast. It's a, it's a Bill Clinton weed joke, right? <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Gen Xers. It's a joke for you Gen Xers out there. <laughs> uh, I'm going to guess that most people who've seen this movie uh, did kind of wonder what waiting to exhale means, <laughs> at least for some <laughs> portion of the time they were watching the movie. Like, I, I'm not sure that it's like terribly intuitive, uh, but but it's really about just holding your breath until you have the man and the relationship and the perfect life that you thought you were going to have. So you're you're waiting uh, until you get to that state of uh, self-actualization that our four ladies get to at the end of the movie and they are finally able to exhale. Oh, I thought it was <sighs> after having your face in the valley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. My life's been better since the day I left you, boy I must admit life's been kind to me I went and did the things I said uh, So guys, I, I, think we're, I think we're at the big drum roll question. Is Waiting to Exhale the perfect movie soundtrack? 
or is one of them better than the other? Joshua, what do you think? I think it's the perfect movie soundtrack. Yeah, buddy. Oh, yeah. I want to hear, hear the case. They go together absolutely perfectly. The combination of what they equal is profoundly uh, important to the people that the movie was made for. I was talking to a friend of mine, Tiffany, and she was talking about the impact it had on her and you know ev- everybody she knows who, who loves this movie. Mm-hmm. I asked her something that feels a little amateurish about the directing, and she brushed that right off. And she was like, no, 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 this is classic church play structure. And she was like, everybody that saw this got that. Wait, do we know what, do you know what church play structure is? So she's, so she's saying that it's, it's the kind of thing that Tyler Perry is tapping into Mm -hmm. a little bit too, that there's a, a, a sort of structure that, that people who go to churches that have these sorts of, uh, plays and performances know and are familiar with. I'm not an expert in it, so I'm not going to pretend that I am. What I will say is that. I think that it helps explain why, despite the movie feeling a little off to me, or maybe it explains exactly why the movie feels a little bit off to me. And so I guess I'm using that as a way to defend my answer, but I'll say I came to my answer before talking to her about that. I just think that it's 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 perfect. They go together perfect. I want to learn more about the uh, production strategies of the, the church play folks who are able to deal with all of these different set pieces and cuts. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I don't know, maybe church play means that there's like 400 stage stage settings or, you know. (laughs) And, well, I do know they have lots of um, sex scenes. Yeah, 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 they talk a lot about sticks and dicks. (laughs) Yeah. So there it is. That's my first perfect movie soundtrack vote. Uh, Put me on the board. Wow. Well, Joshua, that fucking delights me to no end. Um, Matt, what do you think? When I don't know what to do. In, with this question, mm-hmm. I just I go I go this I go. This question we assigned ourselves. Yeah, and I, I switch the criteria yeah. <laughs> every time depending on how I want to answer right. it. Yeah, me so too. this criteria is <laughs> yeah. w- which would I put on first in the future? Would I put on the album or the movie? Oh. And I oh. lean so much mm-hmm. more toward the album. I think I'd want to listen to the album. <sighs> I, I get why they're perfect though, because they're so synonymous and they work so well together. Right. But I'm just gonna kind of wimp out and go. Not the perfect movie soundtrack, because the soundtrack's performing more professionally and harder than the movie for me. Sorry, sorry, Tiffany. <laughs> <You're listening. laughs> uh, that's okay. I can I can put another one up on the board for Tiffany. I, I also think this is the Whoa. perfect movie soundtrack. I do. Wow. I, I think for me, and I don't think there's a snowball's chance in hell I would have understood this without uh, having really looked at this movie and this music as hard and the book as hard as I did. I just think it was such an important gate for us all to pass through. Oh, and that it I wouldn't, like it. I think that we needed the movie. I think we needed the book. I think we needed the album. I think we needed Whitney's uh, bridge between the soundtrack and the movie. Mm-hmm. I think that, all of the things that came together in this sort of like mini universe were um, were necessary. And I think they were necessary not only for black women in the in America. I think they were also necessary for Gen X to like begin mm. to have a sense of mm. of a narrative about itself that wasn't exclusively white. Or about Ethan Hawke. And I and <laughs> or about the whitest of the white, the, the Hawk family, the, the Hawk Thurman family. Um, 
and I and I also think that what uh, this movie made possible in part in in no small part because of its soundtrack and the success of that soundtrack was was an opening um, for a lot of people either an opening of wow there is something out there that's not mine but clearly it's uh, really important and valuable and like literally marketable. Or whether it was an opening of, holy shit, they're finally fucking putting our lives on mm-hmm, the screen, mm-hmm. on the page, in the fucking music. And I want and need that. And it makes me feel good. And I just think that that whole phenomenon couldn't have happened without the film and the Babyface album working together. Sadly, like it took all three. It took Terry <laughs> McMillan. It took, yeah, it took wow. the movie. And That's it a took great the point. soundtrack. They all sort of formed this three-legged stool that made a lot of shit that we should all be really grateful for possible. See, you went with the three-legged stool metaphor. I would have gone with Voltron. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's a little more powerful. I was also going to say, you were making, when you were saying that, you were making me think how uh, generational the soundtrack is and how it spans like so many careers and how deep the soundtrack goes, which I wasn't thinking about before. I think that the soundtrack has an, like speaking of the, the like church play uh, mm-hmm. structural echoes of this of the story i think that the the soundtrack also has echoes of like how important it is to know your ancestors and your genealogy and what it means to know the uh, people who mm-hmm, came before mm-hmm. you and to have them connect to the mm. people who come after mm. them and there's just a there's a like familial through line mm-hmm. in the soundtrack and in the movie that i think is really important and I am, and I'm like so so glad that this uh, dumb podcast is, is like the reason why I was able to convince myself to ha- spend two weeks like really getting close to this movie and this book and and this soundtrack. So, do you think I should add this to the uh, Wikipedia page for this movie? <laughs> should we be doing that for all the movies that we do at the end? Like, we should be going onto the Wikipedia yeah. and updating them with this important with this important determination we're making. <laughs> But if it brings you pain in your life Don't be afraid to let it go Let it blow, let it blow, let it blow Matt, I believe that you, it is your turn to choose movie for us to watch do you know where you are taking joshua and me next yes i've known for a while okay because when joshua um suggested baby driver and it got us out of the pocket of what we're calling the big soundtrack era we've been doing a lot of these late 80s 90s kind of like peak soundtrack waiting for excel is a perfect example of that that instead of going more modern i went to the past cool and I remembered there was a soundtrack I discovered in college that I absolutely loved. And still to this day, I've never seen the movie before. And it's kind of breaking our rules. Oh, no. It is a various artist soundtrack. Okay. But four of the songs are by the same artist. Okay. And then the rest are various. So we're easing in if we ever kind of... And it is one of those songs with a title track written for and named after the movie. I'm definitely on the edge of my seat. It is The Harder They Come by Jimmy Cliff. <gasps> oh, I'm so glad you picked that. And 
I, you know I'm going to ask you about your thoughts and favorite title tracks written for the movie and other movies. Yeah, too. this That'll is cool. That'll be a fun yeah. topic we'll talk about. And we get to talk about Jamaica. And Jimmy Cliff. Which is also going to be fun. I, I, I also have never seen it, and it's been on my list forever. Is this the first time I've seen a movie and you two nerds haven't seen it already? <laughs> okay, all right. The harder they come. <sighs> this is great. Jamaica's first feature is America's number one cult movie. Jimmy Cliff, an existential hero as good as anything James Dean or Brando portrayed in the 50s. In the backyard of paradise, life and marijuana are cheap. Got a little bit of exciting news developing over here in the podcast. Don't want to quite make the formal announcement just yet, but it's looking like we're going to have a special extra episode for you next week. A conversation with the director and musician behind a really fun movie that just came out on Netflix. We'll make a more formal announcement once it's all set in stone in the coming days over on our Twitter and Instagram at TPMS Podcast. Can't tell you how much we've been enjoying the ratings and reviews and hearing from you. we got a big summer coming up here for you with some big summer plans that we'll tell you more about here in the coming weeks as well. For Matt and Heather, this is Joshua, and thanks for listening. <laughs>